0: So, now it's time to welcome our first speaker to the stage. Uh, our first speaker today is Professor Thorsten Passi. He is professor at Hanover Medical School in Germany and has many, many years of experience with research on altered states of consciousness and psychedelic psychotherapy. Please welcome him to the stage. Yeah, hello. Um, no, I have two of these things, so let's see what will work here. Okay, yeah, uh, so uh, I have uh, full understanding that not so much people are here because it's a little bit of a kind of boring topic. It's in a way interesting to talk about what could be an ideal psychoactive substance an ideal intactogen, an ideal hallucinogen, and so on. Uh, but uh, hopefully, even if it is a little bit boring because it goes into issues of pharmacology, pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetics, and so on, but hopefully I have uh, put it together a presentation where you still can learn some stuff from even as a psychologist or somebody who has not as much knowledge about the pharmacological stuff. But there are also some interesting things in there which you could think about even from a clinical point of view. And um, so uh, I will give you an outline, oh no, first I have to do my disclosures, so I'm uh, working as a consultant with Seruvia because I have a patent on Bromo LSD for the treatment of cluster headaches, and so I'm involved in this medication uh, development process and I have a contract with Diamond Therapeutics about microdosing, but I was taking very much care that I don't, uh, I'm not connected to any kind of company doing psychotherapy work, you know, so these are things which are beyond that. And I wrote a book about microdosing, this is the reason why they hired me. So because I'm the chairman of the International Society for Substance Assisted Psychotherapy and try to take a neutral stance, not connected to any commercial endeavor. Okay, so the overview is, I will uh, talk to you about some drug differences and how they have been researched. Then I will give you an outline of different forms of experiences which may play a role in that respect. I will give you an idea about toxicity, but just very shortly. And then I will talk about some pharmacokinetic aspects of a psychedelic drug as well as about pharmacodynamic aspects. And then we will go into substances which may provide the optimal properties for being used in that respect. Okay, uh, at first about drug differences. So drug-induced states have been researched since the mid-19th century, uh, first off by moreau de Tour in France. Uh, I don't want to go into this because he did not go for differences of uh, substances. This is uh, somewhat, uh, something else with Kurt Beringer, who was a major German psychiatrist. And uh, he worked in the 1920s with uh, Mescaline and wrote a big monograph about it what you can see here, Der galine rouche It was the first psychopathological subtle analysis of the phenomena which appear in such an inebriation. And then uh, we have to mention Leo Hollister, uh, one guy from the US uh, in the 1960s, and he wrote a book about chemical psychosis, as it was called at the time, uh, and uh, LSD and related drugs. It means he also did comparison studies uh, about the substances and uh, we have knowledge about these all these substances from these uh, uh, research and um, later on there were two other significant researchers in the field. One was Hans Karl Leuner, best known for his work on psycholytic therapy, but in his uh, seminal work, Die Experimentelle Psychose, worth uh, reading for everybody interested in the field. Uh, and he also did, at first, different kinds of psychoactive substances in his experiments, and so he has also brought up a comparative analysis. And uh, interestingly enough, another guy from Switzerland, Adolf Dittrich, at Zurich University Psychiatric Clinic, uh, did a major study uh, comparing different drugs as well as different other, induced by other means, I mean uh, different other uh, altered states of consciousness and came up with his uh, concept um, and um, a- about the uh, different dimensions of the subjective experience, but I don't want to go into that first. Uh, I go into this concept, which has been shared by Leuner as well as Dietrich, and it was the concept of there are two groups of hallucinogenic drugs. And they, they call them drugs, hallucinogenic drugs of the first order and of the second order. And I will give you some features. These are the prototypes of that group, the uh, hallucinogens of the first order. And this is the, these are the prototypes of the second order hallucinogenic drugs. And so what we see here, first order, uh, LSD, clear consciousness. With atropine or lasing gas, you have a clouded consciousness. That's one difference. So uh, under the influence of psilocybin, LSD, it is known that your affectivity or emotions are intensified while with the uh, other uh, class of drugs, they are blunted or have a bizarre format. Uh, You have just, you could say, mild thought disorder with LSD. They can be also a little bit severe, but not as much. So you're still in a kind of normal range somewhat. And this is why people can also communicate under the influence of LSD, for example, with with their therapists or so. And uh, while you have with the other drugs, you have severe thought disorder. So sometimes you have no idea what's really uh, going on. And you have good memories, good memory of what you have experienced with LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, but you have grave memory disturbances, usually even an amnesia about the effects of the other class of drugs. And so we know that uh, with the first order hallucinogens, usually you have very complex visual imagery while you have more primitive visual imagery. I will come later to that point with the second-order hallucinogenic drugs. I think that's an important decision and Dittrich, uh, 25 years after Leuner, have kind of confirmed this concept and we should go back to it because it gives us some advice how to uh, take a look at these different substances and their differences. Okay, so Dietrich's dimensions, which he uh, came across, it was a concept to do research on different kinds of altered states of consciousness and look out for if there are, are, on the subjective experiential level, are there parallels or things which can be found in every kind of state, right? uh, Independent of its etiology or causation, right? Or induction maneuvers. And so I, just, I don't want to go that much into it. I just want to uh, check the dimensions here. Oceanic boundlessness is the first dimension. Dread of ego dissolution, so it's the opposite. Heaven and hell, if you want. And visual restructurization, visions, right? Vigilance reduction, he later came up with that dimension because he thought it may be important to, for example, uh, do a decision in between these classes of hallucinogenic drugs. And also auditory hallucinations, also a an important uh, point and what we can see here uh, from a data which I have gathered uh, differences in between the substances. And you can see here, for example, LSD produces a little bit more visuals than MDMA. These has be, have been closed-eyes imagery, right, about... Usually it's not the case in experiments because the people are sitting in front of a computer or something. This was not the case here. But what you can also see is LSD is a little bit more anxiety-producing. This is the anxiety uh, scale here. And you can see that, and the uh, the main thing here is that you see here with amphetamine, this kind of placebo-like, right? You're just a little bit euphoric, you don't have much anxiety, you don't have visuals, you don't have vigilance reduction and stuff like that. But what is important here is we have this unusual drug of the second order, this would be one of the first order, right? Uh, But here you can see clouding of consciousness, vigilance reduction, so ketamine is having that much vigilance reduction or clouding of consciousness. And this is why it is not an ideal drug, I think, for psychotherapeutic purposes. And if you go deeper into it, which I have done in my experiments at Hanover Medical School, which have been also published in uh, major journals, is that here you see placebo and here the same low-dose ketamine, very high in respect to clouding of consciousness, and we see higher doses even higher. So this this was a crossover study, so we have used the same subjects uh, under the same conditions, under different uh, drug amounts of the drug. Okay, and these are my pause things. These uh, are uh, photographic art from my uh, uh, good friend uh, Harry C. Kane, who died uh, 10 years ago. And just for... Okay, what's about the forms of the experience, because that's important, if you are doing psycholytic therapy or MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, you are not out for ego dissolution, right? But with the psychedelic therapy model, you are out for ego dissolution, and so you have different forms of experiences which you have to uh, put in, uh, in um, a connection to the uh, different uh, substances. And just to make it up in a very uh, schematic and simple fashion, so psycholytic uses lower doses, psychedelic higher doses. So with psycholytic therapy, you just modify ego functions, but you don't get rid of them while the psychedelic is out for ego dissolution. And there is, in psycholytic therapy, that's a main characteristic of psycholytic therapy. So you dose just as high that you are reflecting ego remnant, so a a rudimentary ego is still there. Uh, If that has disappeared, then the dose is too high with the psycholytic approach, right? And the reflecting ego remnant helps you to steer the experience as well as to communicate about it. So there's no equivalent in respect to the psychedelic. And uh, with psycholytic therapy, you do serial sessions, while with um, psychedelic therapy, you do, uh, do just one or two. And you have a psychodynamic uh, frame of interpretation uh, in the psycholytic approach while you have a more transpersonal or transcendental uh, way of interpreting these experiences with the psychedelics, uh, with the psychedelic approach. And we easily can uh, conclude that there are differences in respect to the approach, and so there might be differences in respect to an ideal substance. Okay, ego dissolution, you have heard about that, I guess. Experience of oneness, I don't want to repeat here. These are the classical criteria for an ego dissolution or a mystical kind of ego dissolution. You have heard that there is also a dread of ego dissolution, right? So you can also have bad experiences. Um, And here I give you one example of that, just to give you an impression out of these experiences, which can be very deep-reaching and also have a lot of healing potential, but they have to be integrated in a long-term psychotherapy process. And just to give you a schematic, you don't have to go into these verbs and all that stuff. So these are some ego functions, and what I want to make clear here is that under a psycholytic dose, you have altered these ego functions, but they are not gone, right? And the main thing with these reflecting ego remnant is that you, uh, you get kind of uh, rid of the ego function somewhat and you, you lose the ego and in its configuration, so to say. And this here is the reflecting ego remnant still left, the ther- therapeutic split, we know that from conventional psychotherapy too. And the reflecting ego remnant is able to perceive the experience somewhat, oh, doctor, I feel that in that way and that came from that and that source that kind of thing, you can still do, and you also can steer the experience uh, somewhat. We see you are reflecting ego remnant, you could say, oh, let's check out here, you know, that's too much for me, or something like that. So it's a more smooth way, so to say. So the ego functions are altered and reduced, but partially intact, that's a main thing, plus the reflecting ego remnant left. So that means we have different needs for high-dose psychedelic therapy and low-dose psycholytic therapy and MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. I put that as a separate approach because it is a separate approach, even if it has a lot of similarities to the psycholytic approach, because it has been proven that MDMA does not do any ego dissolution. So, And we have to look out for inpatients, then we have a lot of time, Theoretically, so we could do an LSD trip, no problem. But what's about outpatients? If they just come in for a few hours, and that was Leuner's goal in his last years, to prepare a substance which can be used in outpatient settings because it's working just two or three hours. Right, so different needs for different substances, so to say. Okay, if it comes to the issue of toxicity, I don't want to go as much into it, but uh, it's obvious that we have acute toxicity, means um, uh, un- under the direct influence of the drugs there might be toxicity, but we have also heard that in the early years of MDMA uh, it was, uh, has been claimed that there, are, there is chronic damage in the brain through MDMA. That is not true and has been found to be not true. However, there might be also patient-specific toxicity, so some patients can't cope with some drugs. It's a usual thing in a physician's uh, office, so you have to look out for that. For example, epilepsy has, mentioned, epilepsy has been mentioned yesterday and so on, and we have also looked out for the therapeutic range. I will go uh, explain that in my next slide, and we have to look out for after-effects. Are there any after-effects? We know that, for example, uh, flashbacks or other after-effects can happen. If you have to look out for that, if there are specific substances which don't produce these after-effects, for example. And we have to look out for interactions with other drugs as well as with some diseases people might have. Okay, what what is meant by the therapeutic range? So if you have a drug which can be dosed just five milligrams or seven, and 10 is toxic, and it is not a very broad therapeutic range. So that if the toxic threshold is over there, then it's you know you really have to take care yet yet you don't dose too much. With five methoxy DMT, for example, you can have a mild experience, but you can also have a complete uh, confusion. I would say experience, uh, and it's very near to each other, right? So we would wish for. Co- this is a therapeutic range, in this case here, very small, but what we also can imagine that it is, um, that, the, toxis, that you know, the therapeutic range can be also very, very uh, large. So it means that the s- substance is untoxic, and you can dose it in a very easy fashion because you're not reaching the toxic threshold even if you dose f- three times more than normal or stuff like that. Right? So we would wish for a substance which has a broader therapeutic range. Okay, then, what are pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics? The usual a person will not know that, uh, and uh, I will give you a very primitive definition of that. Pharmacokinetics is what does the body to a substance. That's pharmacokinetics. So. It, Is it metabolized easily? Is it going into all tissues and stuff like that? What is going on with uh, what does the body to the substance? And pharmacodynamics can be defined as, right? Just to give you an idea about what I will talk about here. Okay, at first about the pharmacokinetic aspects. We are looking out in pharmacokinetics for plasma levels. Are they there? There are, for example, substances which are going immediately into the tissue. You can't find them in the blood anymore. So you might think, oh, they are gone. They are metabolized. No, they are in other tissues. Um, Time effect curves, you know, if there is a congruence between the clinical effects and the plasma level, for example. And we are looking out for linear versus non-linear pharmacokinetics. I will go into that a little later. We will look out for the steepness of onset which can be very radical. If you inject, uh, inject, for example, a drug, it can be immediately going somewhere, very dangerous, for example, with psilocybin. And we are also looking out in my presentation for the modes of application, so if you apply a substance intravenously, or inhale it, or snort it, or whatever kind of uh, mode of application you want to use, make uh, different effects. And we are also looking out for the duration of action, right? And how long is the substance in your body, half-life, etc. Okay, so what we see here is, at first, a clinical course of an action of a drug. So it means, for example, the psilocybin derivative, CZ74, which has been used and produced by Zandos in the 1960s as a shorter-acting psilocybin derivative, it just goes for two to three hours. And then we have psilocybin, goes somewhere longer, five to six hours, and LSD even longer. This is the clinical course of the effects. This is not the plasma level. So, But we come to that with uh, um, um, a graph from, from, uh, taken from the Dolder-Lichty publication. And what you see here is 100 mics, oh, sorry, plasma level after oral dose. 100 and 200 mics and what is interesting here to know is this is pharmacokinetics so this is a lower dose, right, so this one and you see that with the the higher dose you have a longer action, right not really a wonder but also important to register, right here you can see the plasma curves and what uh, course of drug effects here are the differences in between the lower and the higher dose So, it gives you a longer effect. So, this becomes subclinical at this point here. But with the higher dose, you might have to take care of the patients for uh, 10 to 12 hours, right? So, And what is meant by non-linear pharmacokinetics? So if you were looking out for the plasma level of a substance, you ideally find this kind of way that the substance is excreted through the kidneys, for example, and the urine, and also metabolized by the liver or whatever kind of organ where the enzymes are. And if it comes to non-linear pharmacokinetics, you might see a different picture. So if you would expect from your usual substance that it goes this way, it goes this way. This is not as much depend on the substance. It's because some substances, and that's significant for MDMA and the death cases in Berlin in 2009, were because of that, because the MDMA is inhibiting the enzymes which metabolize MDMA. And so during the metabolism, so to say, these enzymes are inhibited, so the plasma level will be higher. And it has been said by Matthias Lichty yesterday, uh, I thank him for that, that if you take a second dose and all your e- enzymes are inhibited, you get a very high plasma level, without so much effect. So then you could also come into the toxic range, or as it happened in Berlin, they have been overdosed 10 times. That's another thing, but they have, be, have been given an antecgenic drug in advance of that ten times more MDMA thing, you know, and this is why they died. so these are this is a linear model, so to say, the usual one, and this is one where the enzymes are inhibited, and this is happened if you take a second dose above that or on that. Okay, then we are going into types of onset, so you can have different kinds of onset, a very harsh onset, sometimes with MDMA, especially with first timers where it goes very high in the, in the first few minutes, let's say, or in the first 10 minutes, then you can have a more smooth uh, um, uh, type of onset, how the drug will uh, come into your organism or into your psychological state, and you also can have a much more smooth, and this is here the critical phase, so to say what we are talking about, the onset, and here you can see easily that, that much that thing is much more smooth. But we will also look into the transitional period, which might contradict some of these things that we might think. Okay, that's a much more smooth thing here. Let's do it that way, right? But uh, okay, we come la- back later to that. Okay, and then the fade out. So how is the drug going out of the system, or how are the clinical effects going down or fade out? You know, that's also important. With some drugs like 2CB, you have a very kind of harsh end. You know, not so much people like that, so that might be not the ideal property for such a drug. And uh, here you can see that this is a very long fade out also here, right? And this, for example, might uh, might happen, uh, this very smooth here might happen if you slow dose. So you take the dose in three steps, not at once, Uh, you take it in three steps. We come back later to that. So the fade-out phase and the onset phase are important factors to determine uh, how a drug will work in the patient and how harsh it will be for him to experience that. And then we also have to uh, put in regard galenics. It means how a drug is prepared. And we have specific pharmaceutical preparations, as you know, retarded preparations, intravenous preparations, and so on. It determines the form of the onset. It also determines the course of the effects. If you have a retard tramadol, for example, you can take one uh, one pill for all day. If you have the drops, for example, you have to take it three to to four times a day to to get it higher again. The forms of come down and fade out. And what we can do in respect to psychedelics is what we have uh, uh, called slow dosing. there's also an option to do an extended release. How that makes sense, I will come later to that. So these are, so to say, specific galenics, yeah? specific forms, how you administer a drug in a specific format. Okay, if we look for the mode of application, it is interesting that there, if you inhale a drug, it does not go through the whole system, it goes directly to the brain. This is why it's so harsh if you <laughs> inhale something, crack for example, or psilocybin, DMT, or even cannabis or so, which needs a little bit longer but, uh, to, to come into action. So then you have intravenous, which is a little bit less effective usually than the inhaled in, uh, route by inhalation. And then you have intranasal, this is here done for DMT, right? So intranasal gives you a little bit longer uh, a course of action, right, and it's not that harsh of an onset, so it might be better compa- compatible to uh, uh, people. And here, the, the intranasal uh, thing is forced because one person is putting it into the nose of the other and then they go far out, believe me. And uh, then there is the intramuscular route, for example, I, Adolf Dietrich has uh, done uh, one of his studies with D- DMT, in fact, but he gave it by the intramuscular route, and here you can see it, take, it will uh, have a longer course of action, but it's also much milder in the beginning, it's not as much anxiety-producing as, for example, the inhalation route. And the oral version, you could say ayahuasca, for example, that's the example here, right? It goes for one, two, three hours, you know, and it has a very mild onset, so to say, and an easy fade out. So it's, uh, I call it a harm reduction portion of uh, DMT. <laughs> so if we look, that's pretty interesting to know, because there are quite differences in between the substances. If you l- use the oral route with LSD, you will have that kind of picture as we have seen. And with the intramuscular route, the onset is a little bit earlier. So that was a preferred route by most psycholytic therapists in the past because that phase where you wait for the effect is a little bit shortened and that was felt more agreeable by the patient. And now it is, uh, the interesting thing is, if you do LSD intravenously, you don't have that immediate onset. It needs 20 minutes to come on with an intravenous shot. And that is because of it does pass the blood-brain barrier very slowly. The blood-brain barrier is a specific um, layer surrounding every vessel in the brain just the vessels in the brain. So it's the most complex machinery we have available, and so if everything we eat would immediately go into the brain and every medication and stuff, and every virus, you know, they have put it a layer surrounding these vessels, and that's called the blood-brain barrier. So it's a specific barrier that where substances can pass through into the brain tissue or not, depends on, or slowly and stuff like that. And it seems LSD is very slow, but I have to warn you this is an order by Franz Vollenweider what he, because he wrote about that in his papers. If you look at DMT and psilocybin on an intravenous level, you know, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it, especially with psilocybin. It's a very harsh onset. So right now I know that they uh, are building or they are designing a psilocybin in, as an intravenous preparation, but Franz and Felix Hasler have warned us about that, to do that, because they had so much bad trips. So. And we don't go for the intervenous route, why should we, right? Okay, so this is an idea which we brought up, uh, Markus Berger and me, uh, it, uh, it came from the Indians, in fact, which I visited uh, kind of 25 years ago in the uh, peyote desert. And they showed me a specific method to to. Uh, oh i i 'll go into it a little bit, so what they did is they at first they checked if I can take part in stuff, and then my friend couldn't but i and then they came up and, and the next morning and had a little plastic bag with um, rough uh, uh, ground, grinded uh, peyo- dried peyote and then they put that in the hand a little kind of pile, then they spit it on it and kind of like a cake uh, thing, you know, and then they formed a kind of chewing gum ball out of it, and then they pressed it like a an coin, and then they put it that uh, under the gaumen, you know, so that you can choose this so bitter, the stuff, you can't gulp it down in any way. It's so hard. And, but with that method, you don't have uh, uh, taste receptors here, and so you can choose with your tongue how much contact you want to that very bitter material. And interestingly enough, you get a very slow onset of the drug, very nice. And uh, the point is that uh, when you, uh, at a certain point, when you feel that you're going into that state and into the, with peyote, sometimes even the mystical kind of realm, then the taste changes to sweet. And what you also can do, if you are on a certain level with the, with the experience, you can take it out put it in a little plastic bag from a cigarette uh, package and take it into your pocket, and two hours later, when you're kind of... then you... <laughs> <laughs> yeah? So this is slow dosing in a very elegant fashion, and this had never b- been published, that technique. Be, uh, we have, meanwhile, published a publication about the general idea of slow dosing. And what it means, for example, uh, it has been claimed that, that masculine is producing nausea, and physical discomfort. And I was having a heavy luster uh, together with Alexander Shulgin in the 1990s in his lab when we talked about mescaline. This is human ignorance which produces nausea and physical discomfort because these guys in the 1920s, they injected their patient intramuscularly with 400 milligrams of, of mescaline. Then you have nausea, but if you do the slow dosing way, Nothing happens. So we were laughing about the human ignorance and that every uh, publication is stating, oh, physical discomfort, nausea with mescaline. No, if you take mescaline, for example, uh, every half hour in three portions, you know, every half hour, you have to be be a little bit patient and not awaiting, oh, what's that? Nothing happens. No, you have to be a little bit more patient. And after the third dose, You know, so this is a very elegant way to get the body accustomed to a substance, right? And so you might not experience as much Nausea with slow dosing. And then there is another idea which I made a proposal about. when we came to the conclusion you might know that I've uh, worked for three years in Boston at the university, and uh, I was very near to, very close by to Rick Doblin, so we sat together every day, <laughs> so to say. And at a certain point we had an, uh, um, an email came in, and uh, Rick Doblin was very much about the active placebo problem. in in psychedelic research. And so they tried to give them 25 milligrams of MDMA instead of an inactive placebo and stuff like that. So he put it up to 75, because with 25, the people were going into their trauma but couldn't process it. That was really dysfunctional. So, however, uh, we did 75. And at that point, the email came in when we were sitting there in front of the computer and said, oh, we have the newest results, and they show 75 are actually better than 125, you know. And uh, I said to Rick, now you can choose if you want to be a scientist or an American. <laughs> the more, the better, you know. He came to the, we, we were discussing actively, and then I said, okay, the ideal dose might be 90, you know. But he kind of agreed, but he want to have three digits. Meanwhile, they put it down to 85. So it seems, but it is interesting that the intensity was too high. And we were looking at these video clips from the sessions, and a lot of these guys, especially the veterans, the war veterans, they were saying, oh, it took me apart at first. So they couldn't process the material appropriately because it was a little bit too much, right? The 125 dose. And I came up with the idea why are not doing an extended release, right? so that you have a more steady effect and the brain matrix, which might be in a healing state at a certain point, is more on a continuum, so you have a more of a plateau, so to say, right? That could be an option in the future. Okay, then we can look out for the subacute effects a substance might have. So after ZZ74, the people were easily away, um, uh, able to sleep. But after MDMA, you have a certain after effect, which does not let you sleep easily. You have to drink a glass of wine or take a benzodiazepine or whatever to fall into sleep, or you stay awake un- until you do it. So we have to look out for the subacute effects, which might uh, b- uh, be much longer than the acute effects. Yeah, now we're coming to the pharmacodynamic aspects of the uh, problem, so to say, oh, this is, has not been animated appropriately. So what we call uh, clean and dirty drugs is, the pharmacologist is looking out for a drug specific for that receptor, doing exactly that and that, and that action on that receptor. So they called our drugs, the pharmacologist, uh, they called them dirty drugs, because they work on different receptors, doing different things, and at last bringing together a brain which is able to be healed or whatever, you know. And so, meanwhile, they changed their mind and they said, we are dealing with pharmacologically rich drugs, not dirty drugs anymore. Uh, And selectivity can have advantages, but it can be also having disadvantages, come later to that. But LSD, you have to know that, is very unselective, so it works on 25 receptors at the same time. Even if one or two or three of them are the most dominant uh, uh, receptors or or modes of actions, other uh, receptors are... Um, also affected. With psilocybin, you have a much more selective drug, which is mainly working on the 5-HT2A receptor. It has also some disadvantages. I don't want to go into that, but what is interesting is that in respect to flashbacks, you can't really find evidence that psilocybin is producing it. I don't know about the recent clinical trials, but from the publications of the past, uh, there are virtually no rep- uh, rep- uh, reported flashbacks with psilocybin, and I would hypothesize that that might depend on this receptor selectivity. Yeah, With the antactogens, you have a synergy of different mechanisms of, actions work- uh, of action working together. Right? And so you have a lot of receptors going on because you're uh, secreting serotonin, uh, it works on the adrenaline receptors, on the dopamine receptors, and so on. So, but it seems that that is needed somewhat to create that uh, brain matrix which might be helpful for healing. Okay, then we have to look for the vegetative phase, as it was called in the past. It is the onset of the substance in respect to bodily symptoms, so to say. Right, and usually it's in the during the first hour, the vegetative phase, where the body is somewhat irritated. Doctor, I have a headache. Doctor, I feel not well. Doctor, I'm in discomfort. Doctor, I'm, I'm nauseated, and stuff like that. These kind of things, and also my heart is f- f- beating faster and stuff like that. That can be experienced as discomfort. So, this was called the vegetative phase, as uh, it is uh, less so with the intramuscular injection because it is smaller or quicker, going over. And now we are coming to another interesting uh, concept uh, brought out by Charlie Tart in his book, States of Consciousness, uh, very important book, by the way, uh, uh, in respect to altered states uh, of consciousness and their understanding, and what he uh, came up with is, uh, here is uh, Charlie Tart in 1976, a very important researcher in general, and um, what he came up with is that there is a transitional period where the organism and the psyche is going over or going into the altered state, and that phase he called transitional period, right? This is the transitional period or phase, and transitions into altered states of consciousness are usually accompanied by a a set of uh, symptoms, tension, discomfort, insecurity, what will happen to me, what what do I have to expect, stuff like that, and defense, what's going on here? I don't want that, it doesn't feel well, Th- that kind of thing, and I get anxious, anxiety. These are phenomena which you can see often uh, with unexperienced subjects always, kind of. And uh, to understand that a little better, I, uh, uh, I had drawn a scheme here. So if if we go on from the baseline state of consciousness, the usual state of consciousness, then we go through the transitional period, to reach the altered state of consciousness and we have here, we have forces which are kind of producing the altered states. so the brain is getting into another configuration and another activity pattern but that has to be established and that's the phase you're going through and usually feeling some discomfort and the matter is even a little bit more complex as you have Uh, Due to the concept of TART, it's not his his scheme, but uh, he says these are destructuring forces in respect to your usual state of consciousness. But usually the organism, as well as your psyche, has also some other forces which are called structuring forces, and they fight during the transitional period, right? You have destructuring forces, destructuring your usual state of consciousness, but you have also forces which try to stabilize you to come back to the usual state of consciousness, right? And so there can be a stressful uh, phase. And now we are back at the types of onset, for example, yeah, where you can have, oh, doctor, is it easier to have a steep onset and have that transitional period minimized, or is it better to have a smooth uh, s- uh, onset so that you can get accustomed to it. It depends also on the person, on the material and so on, but you can see here again the, the uh, types of onset which might produce different lengths at least of the transitional phase. And with the peyote example, what I gave to you, it's very slow, you know, very good. <coughs> so what are the optimal properties of such a substance? Um, the ideal pharmacokinetics Good and consistent resorption, right? That's important. If you have a bad stomach or if you have eaten something and stuff, that might uh, alter it. And uh, it is important that it has been learned in the past, by the way, that you don't give the drug on a sober stomach, on an on empty stomach. Don't do that. Give them a light breakfast, one, one bourgeon or something like that. Don't, don't start with under sugar, so to say. It's not a good idea. Some people, underground therapists, still do it because they want to have a consistent effect going on for the same period in time and stuff like that, but not a good idea. So we want to have a high bioavailability, so the organism should be able to to get the substance and uh, um, get some actions from it. There should be a large therapeutic range, as I've explained. Linear pharmacokinetics are much better than non-linear for some reasons. There should be a small first-pass effect. First-pass e- pass effect is uh, when, the, uh, when the stuff, is, if you take it orally, it's going into the gut and then it, the blood is going through the liver immediately to extract the nutrients and then the drug will go through the liver and maybe metabolize to a certain degree. Some substances are like ketamine, for example, so you need four times the dose uh, uh, compared to injection if you take it orally. So it's a large first-pass effect. We want to have a small pass, first-pass effect. And we want to have a short half-life. For example, diazepam has an, a clinical action of a 3 to 6 hours, but it is into your system for 150 hours. We don't want that. Right? So we want to have a short half-life. Other uh, important factors, it should be excreted fast, not ha- being in your system for weeks, like cannabis, for example. There should be a smooth onset or, if you choose that way, a quick onset to avoid maybe too much transition. The ideal duration depends on the setting. For outpatients, it might be 2 to 3 hours. For inpatient, it might be up to 10 hours, no problem. And uh, ideally, there should be a short time Th- to let the organism adjust to the substance if we can produce that and to you make use out of the state because I- at the first phase and the transition phase you're also so much irritated that you can't do much work, right? <clears throat> Slow or fast fade out depends also on the setting and on the substance, and there should be no severe uh, uh, sub-acute effects afterwards, like you can't sleep and, and are still aroused but can't do anything with the state and so on. But there are also positive aspects of the uh, uh, opening up under the influence of MDMA in respect to the subacute acute effects, right? So people can still do interpersonal work without any problem because their cognitive abilities are already there. And to give you an example, one time I treated a couple with MDMA, and first of they were completely absorbed in the experience sitting in the chairs and don't do that much and I told my wife I will be at home at 7 around that and then at 6:30 uh, uh, they came back and then they talked for another 5 hours because they were completely fit but still open and without any anxiety. It was a fascinating comp- conversation, believe me. It was unbelievable. You know? But I had to z- SMS my wife if I would come at midnight. You know? <laughs> Really crazy. And so subacute effects can also contribute to the therapeutic work, obviously. So we need mild physical effects. We need easy onset and fade out, no exhaustion, that's also important, right, no, not so much of a hangover, so for example, a lot of people don't feel that exhaustion after LSD, but they feel it after MDMA, it's a little bit individual, no severe, so, and minimal interactions. So, what, what we do, um, sorry, that's not animated the right way. However, so uh, what we need in respect to pharmacodynamics, so what is the substance doing doing to the body, we need target-oriented brain activation. It means you don't want to activate the whole brain if you just need to activate that region, right? So there could be a selective power in that respect. Um, then we could think the less receptor types involved, it might be better with psilocybin, for example, that it might produce less after effects or so. We don't know. But however, we have to have more receptors or target regions in the brain to, to be involved if we want to activate a complex brain matrix as it uh, is uh, happened under the influence of MDMA. And what we also look out for is. Uh, that we can easily stop the reaction. And believe me, we don't need these antidotes like ketanserine and so on. You have seen that. If you have a person on a very bad trip it can happen once in a while, and if you have to do something against it, don't give ketanserin by the oral route because that person is in a sympathomimetic state, a very aroused, so the, the, the focus of the body is not digestion, and so the, the, the stomach is kind of closed, so it needed some time to come on, and you have seen on the picture it takes you two hours. And two hours on a traumatic horror trip? No, you can do that quite simple with injection, uh, with an injection of diazepam, in the range of uh, five to ten milligrams intravenously, and the people are immediately back, completely relaxed, without anxiety, sober, not very sleepy. They are just as usual in a minute. Much better option than to use these kind of oral things. But uh, is it true that I what I heard recently that? that uh, f- uh, f- um, Swiss physicians are not trained to do intravenous injections because it's done by other personnel? Is that true? Th- n- does anybody know about that? Untrue or not? Or? Not true, okay. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I have to check that further, it seems. Yeah, okay. Not true, okay. But uh, for for a psychiatrist, it's in a kind of just in emergency cases you will give an intravenous injection. And so I think there is a certain threshold they have to go over to do that. But in this case, it's harm reduction quite a bit. So please um, go out of your mentality prejudice as a psychiatrist. Okay, what could be an optimal hallucinogenic drug or... And, and entactogenic drug, I will just go very uh, um, uh, shortly over this. So in respect to the psychedelic paradigm, we need something with minimal physical effects, with clear consciousness, severe alteration of brain activity for having that easy ego dissolution going on, emotional activation, strong ego dissolution is good for the psychedelic approach, and different durations from 2.5 hours with DPT and, and DMT to uh, 10 hours with LSD. And if it comes to the ideal hallucinogenic drug for psycholytic purposes, we also need minimal physical effects that is the same. We need a smooth onset. We need complex visual imagery, quite a difference to ketamine, for example, and also an ability to steer the experience. So it should be not overwhelming, also not the onset, right? There are other... Uh, aspects which are about the visual imagery. So you can have simple visual imagery. Usually, you have that with um, uh, drugs like ketamine, for example, and um, uh, others. Uh, but you can also have highly complex imagery with scenic content and which a certain coherence, the uh, the pictures or the scenes emerge from one another in a kind of logical unfolding, and they are biographically determined. The contents and there is. Uh, in the psycholytic uh, realm, always an integration of imagery with the appropriate emotions. And what we can also see and want to see is our hypermnastic phenomena where people can really very much remember what they have experienced in the past. And to give you an idea, this is, for example, a typical kind of uh, uh, um, ketamine-induced imagery. And this is a little bit more complex, but if it comes to this kind of complexity, this is what we want to have, so to say, in the psycholytic realm so that people can imagine things and they can go back to their past and have these complex uh, pictures or scenes going with them. Okay, so what we also need is good memory, no severe thought disorder, an ability to focus and follow the things which are coming up and which might be therapeutically significant. A broad range of doses and effects, so it means we, we can dose very uh, uh, differently and, and sensitive to the situation. And there should be a specific form of onsa- onset and the specific duration depending on the setting. And to be more concrete, i give you an example of ZZ74, which had been tested by Leuner and others in the 1960s. And uh, it's a psilocybin derivative, and it has minimal physical effects. Some people react with uh, some initial nausea, but they have been injected intramuscularly, might be different with the oral route. The duration is short. It is a first-order hallucinogenic drug with ideal properties. And it induces the psycholytic spectrum with complex imagery and all the other features of the psycholytic spectrum, but it also can induce the psychedelic spectrum, uh, for example, ego dissolution. And to tell you a a bit of a secret story, uh, Bill Richards, Mm -hmm. known to most of you, is in fact a pupil of Hans Karl Leuner and has been given ZZ, 64 in 1968, uh, 1963, when he found a poster in the university. He was a student of theology. He found a poster in the university saying, "Oh, we're doing experiments with an hallucinogenic drug." He go, got over there and got that drug and got a kind of enlightening experience, which inspired him until today. Okay, uh, these are. This is a graph from the publication. It, it, it just shows you the clinical effects that they are two to three hours, right? And now we're going, and then these are my last slides. So what we need in respect to entactogenic drugs, we need a good entactogenic effect, mild physical effects, usually they are harsh, some people can't take the drugs and stuff for that, no exhaustion, no hangover, that would be also ideal, no serious after-effect, and limited target-oriented effects on brain activity. And A long and stable healing brain matrix might be uh, uh, reached by extended release, but um, oh, I don't know what happened here. Sorry for that. Okay, Uh, it is important to understand that MDMA, I don't want to go into into, uh, details, but it is important to understand that MDMA is working on different levels. It deactivates acti- the prefrontal cortex uh, and so on. It's also working on the hormonal level as well as on these hormones, triggering learning ext- and extinction. So it is a very complex brain matrix which is activated by MDMA. It's not just one receptor or something like that. So we have a dirty drug with ideal properties. Uh, no, a pharmacological rich drug. Yeah. Uh, but however, uh, the ideal entactogen should give you more emotions than euphoria, right? It should not cloud your consciousness. It should not produce memory disturbances. It should leave your ego functions mainly intact so that you can make use of them or not. You can leave them beside you. And there should be an ability to focus and follow and also an ability to use your defense mechanisms to a certain degree. So you don't want to leave the patient without them. And there is such an antactogen. I have been quiet about it there has been done a lot of research in Germany in the 1990s about this entactogenic uh, drug, but Rick Doblin recommended not to mention it as, as much as the FDA might show up and say, why are you not developing that drug? You know? And he do not want to go out of that. And so Spitzer and others like Leopold Hermler, have done work with SMDE, so which is the left rotating version or enantiomer of MDE. And their studies have shown there are quite, b- quite a bit of studies in the, and there's also a review about MDE in the scientific literature, and minimal physical effects, much less so than with MDMA. You, could t- you have to just take half the dose because the other enantiomer is left out. Also, much more circumscribed brain changes. They have done an fMRI study early on with that. There are full intactogenic effects. And, and that's pretty interesting, my measurements have shown that because we, we have used MDE first and then we're going changing to MDMA and you can see that under the influence of MDE, much a much broader spectrum of emotion can be experienced. It's not so much, how should I say, biased in respect to euphoria, right? You can also experience more feelings, so it's also better in that respect and less dysphoria in a s- more strict sense. So broader spectrum of emotion does not mean u- dysphoria usually, right? And so my synopsis is there are different f- types of hallucinogenic drugs and we still can rely on that old um, uh, separation, which has been empirically underlined by the research of Adi Dittrich. Uh, We have to look out for the toxicity, the therapeutic range. We have some pharmacokinetic aspects involved, some pharmacodynamic aspects involved. There is ego alteration versus ego dissolution, important point. And we have to look out for interactions with other drugs as well as an antidote and an easy way to cope with a bad reaction. Thanks for your attention. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, we can take a few questions. Um, thank you for your talk. I have a question regarding the injection of diazepam,
1: and you mentioned that they are like completely sober and yeah. clear after it. And this is like, really hard for me to understand
0: because aren't Mm -hmm. they just more relaxed and not in fear anymore, but still under the influence of the psychedelic? Yeah. Because also, as far as I know, the acepam is not working on the like on these receptors that yes, the drugs exactly. work on, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's not easy to understand, but I've seen that repeatedly, and I've also been <coughs> able to get reports from cluster headache patients from the U.S., and they do uh, 15 milligrams of diazepam together with 100 mics of LSD because they don't want to experience the LSD effect, and, it's, yeah, and I've seen patients under the influence, zero effect. And the only thing, the only change what we could register in these patients were one time we had a kind of an American uh, entrepreneur, millionaire, whatever kind of, with heavy cluster headaches. And and he uh, uh, just looked out for hippie music on YouTube during the whole time. And he was never about hippie music before. But otherwise, he was completely normal in his mind and his thoughts and everything. It's astonishing. If you have seen that, it's it's astonishing, but it is the case. And we might think about uh, different systems in the brain, and the GABA system is the calming down system, I could say, and the defrightening or disrightening uh, uh, system, and so you might think that that system comes into more influence, so to say. But it's, it's astonishing that the people are not sleepy, so these guys, the cluster headache patients, they were yearning quite a bit, but they were, you could communicate to them, no alteration. You, yeah? So it is interesting, but we don't know how these effects come together. I don't know about the mic and, and stuff. Yeah, your microphone is not working. I, I have... No, this is so not, not working. But you can also speak louder if you want to. I don't know how to make it work, but... Yeah, okay. Uh,
1: speak louder. Um, I have a question about the dosing for psychedelic psych- yeah. therapy. Uh, what are the modern doses? I believe they are different than what... Uh, okay, no, it's working. Yep. Uh, I believe they're different what uh, Stanislav Grof was using as uh, doses, and if so, uh, where do you believe the change comes from? Like, is it only the chemical degradation of LSD, which has not been taken into account 50 years ago, or are other... other? causes for No, uh,
0: I don't uh, understand the second part of the question, uh, but uh, however, in respect to dosing, so the, the recommendation in the original user's manual by Zandos in respect to LSD, which came with your package, uh, it said, uh, give the patient 25 at first, then go up to 50, and then look out where the optimal psycholytic level is reached. Usually it's in the range of 50 to 125 in that realm, usually 50 to 100, but some people need 150, so this is Constitutionally different, and Leuner always told me, "Don't believe in this bullshit of kilogram per blah blah blah." You know, it's it's completely different, and you also p- have to put in regard the OCD features of a person, for example, defense mechanism, ego strength, and so on. So you have no idea until you start and see what's happened. And the the psychedelic dose range, per definition, is 200 to a thousand. So, yeah. Um, well, I've got the quite loud,
1: loud voice, so I'm not going to use the mic. Um, I've got a question concerning ketamine because you said mm-hmm. it might be not the best drug for psychedelic yeah. therapy. And as far as I understood your presentation, it's first because um, it does clouded consciousness, mm-hmm. and second, which I saw yeah. somewhere <coughs> at, at the end, is that it's not um, it's not creating complex enough imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that the group, for example, of Grunder, mm-hmm. I talked to him yeah. um, a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. and I know he's using ketamine for mm-hmm. this type of therapy. Mm-hmm. And I used to work for Johnson Johnson with ketamine, yeah. mm-hmm. and they're totally against it. So yeah. I would like to know your view on it. Yeah, w- uh, totally against what? I got against using esketamine um, in a s- like psych, psychi- like like yeah. psychotherapeutic setting.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually, meditation. you know, it's in it's it's called a dissociative drug. So you dissociate from your emotions, even if you have sometimes the impression that your emotions are very much aroused or stuff like that. They are still in a the distance. They don't reach your soul. And a lot of this imagery is also very far away, and you have complete amnesia afterwards. Even if you have the impression, oh, I experienced something significant, you, and even if you take notes, you will not be able to identify your notes afterwards and stuff like that. So it is an amnesia-producing dissociative drug blunts your effects, and so on. So, And I have worked with Hans Leuner also with ketamine quite a while, and I couldn't see any progress in the patients. So I'm a little bit more pessimistic about that, but who knows? A- a- it may have to do with these kind of clouding of consciousness and blunting affectivity and stuff like that. So, I- in respect to the ideal criteria, ketamine does not fit any of them. I guess just mild physical effects and no much interaction. Thank you
1: very much, yeah, thank you. Hi, um, it's yeah. okay. I have a yeah, sure. Uh, cool. Uh, thanks for a very comprehensive uh, talk, Torsten. Um, I found really interesting uh, the model you posited on the transition uh, into mm-hmm. the altered states and, the, and kind of the, the compound and the drug pushing mm-hmm. you into the ASC, but then your internal mechanisms pushing you out of it. Um, and I guess the pragmatic question is about anxiety disorders and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and maybe severe anxiety disorders and cases. And the idea that there might be something internal trying to restructure... Back into normality even more. Mm-hmm. So, with that sort of consideration, I think there's two questions. One is: uh, Is psycholytic approaches recommendable in these mm-hmm. cases, in which there might be strong resistance? Mm-hmm. And then, if you know, in either of the cases, what could be a, an ideal dose of, let's say, just to give an example of LSD, mm-hmm. uh, taking this into consideration.
0: Yeah. Yeah, good point. Uh, What I experience with these patients, I've yesterday talked about their slow progress, so to say. So they trust the experience. They trust more and more and more each session, so to say. That's, That's one point. And it has been found in the past that the best indication for psycholytic therapy and the most worthful, so to say, in respect to success are anxiety disorders. And so even if you have them getting anxiety at first, They trust more and more the process, and that's also part of the healing, somewhat, you know. And um, I want to say something else. Uh, What was it about? Um, uh, No, I don't know. So we go for the next one. So the ideal uh, LSD dose, you have to adjust it to the individual patient, but you would start start low, go slow. Perfect. Thanks.
1: (laughs) Yes, I have a very short one. Um, Thorsten, would you say it's it's regarding the transitional period? Mm-hmm. Would you confirm that um, uh, with giving a, a low dose? So maybe if we underdose, for example, MDMA, that we risk people staying in the transitional period?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, or having a, a bad no. experience? No, you are, you, you are right by uh, asking for this, but I've mentioned that, that uh, the study of Peter Oehren was uh, very tragic in that respect because he had some patients on a 50 milligram MDMA dose and they got stuck in their trauma, couldn't process it. You know, that was, and, and the results were worse than without treatment. So th- this might be a problem, and I just want to go uh, back to Tim, because it comes up again uh, in my mind. Uh, one time we had the patient, uh, I might have mentioned uh, that before at a, a sort of lecture, or so uh, we had a, a patient, and uh, I said to Leuner, I was a sitter, and I said to Leuner, we have to give him a higher dose, because he, he's not experiencing anything. You know, That's the usual f- way of thinking. Leuner said to me, oh, Dr. Pasi, that's the way h- how beginners do it. He said we give him a lower dose. Then he has not to bring up his defenses and can go into the experiment. Work perfect next time. <laughs> but you know, this is you know, I'll take a bigger dose, you know. No. Sometimes a lower dose. Very smooth. Let's use the European tradition, which was the psycholytic tradition, by the way. Yeah. So is there space for up close? Sorry if you have a little bit more time. Thank you for a
1: very interesting talk on a Sunday morning. Um, You showed two uh, slides. One where you said that giving a booster in MDMA Mm -hmm. was not such a good idea. And then you showed another one and you said you would come back to it. Mm -hmm. Where you showed that giving a small dose of MDMA Mm -hmm. in the beginning and then making it longer. So how do you make it longer if you are not giving a booster?
0: Yeah, uh, We don't uh, believe in making it longer. Oh, be honest. that's that's
1: what you showed yeah. on. So okay.
0: the extended release idea is that people are under the influence of the drug for a longer period, but the the plasma levels will be more constant and not going down that way. Okay, okay. It is critical, by the way, from a strict scientific point of view, because MDMA works another way. It does not activate receptors. The main action is it secretes serotonin, and that means the secretion at a certain dose is completed, so to say. Not really, but a lot of the serotonin is already secu- secreted, so it is a question if you can really prolong the state that way
1: by uh, inner meditation or something like that. That's what you mean.
0: Uh, what do you mean by?
1: Me- I mean, like by presence, b- s- making the pr- the person stay as long as it can, really conscious of what is happening. No,
0: no, no, no. It's not. It's not about that. But that could be also an additional me- mechanism. Okay. What I talked about is if your serotonin is secreted already does it make sense to have an extended release? And and I mean a constant plasma level of MDMA to get more secretion over a longer period. That is the basic idea behind that. But we don't know about the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of that specific idea about MDMA. thank 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 you.